Good morning, church. Good to see you all. Good to hear your voices singing here in the room. Uh, Thank you for being here. We're going to open our Bibles and continue to study his word together. Acts chapter 5. So if you'd follow along in your copy of God's word, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Luke writes these words. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So here we have another snapshot of the early church, and we've seen a few of them along the way. We've seen something of the unity of the early church, something of the generosity of the early church and hospitality toward those among them who were needy and who were poor. We've seen the early church in gathered worship as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and the fellowship and the prayers. We've seen a lot of different angles on what the early church was about, and here we see another one. Here we see the early church as a place where the the power of the Holy Spirit was manifested among his people and through the work of the apostles with signs and wonders, miraculous things, people being healed and raised up from uh, inability to move and blindness, blind people receiving their sight and so forth, just powerful, awesome things that God was doing, strengthening and raising and healing and showing off his glorious power to restore. And so, Really, in in one sense, our passage is not very hard to determine. It's pretty fairly straightforward in what it says about the early church. Where things get complicated is when we ask the question, what does this have to do with us? Should we expect signs and wonders to be done by the hands of the apostles if there are no apostles? If the office of the apostle has faded and now you've got pastors and teachers and so forth, deacons, do we still expect the signs and wonders to be done by somebody else, maybe by all of us? as members of the Church of Jesus Christ. So there's questions for us to think about. Remember again, the signs and wonders are being done by the hand of the apostles, but the office of the apostle doesn't continue after the church age. The only offices in the church age are pastor, elder, and and deacon. So continuing that line of thinking, should we conclude that if the apostle's office is gone, therefore the signs and wonders phased out with them? That's just one line of argument, but I only share that just to say, applying Acts chapter 5 to our lives and to the expectations of the church in the 21st century can be complicated. It's it's not just a one-to-one relationship. There's work that we need to do to understand this clearly. Let me make it more personal, though, because that's kind of theology, but let's, let's think about it at a personal level. So if you've ever begged God for a miracle and God reversed the situation and flipped the script in ways that nobody would have predicted or imagined, 
and you see the praise that God gets when he flexes his power to heal and save and redeem and restore in unimaginable and supernatural ways, you know that God can get glory by continuing to show his power in the church. You know that, right? So, so then you want to ask the question, why would we consign the powerful workings of God to the ancient past? When sometimes he does it today, and sometimes we see it today. On the other hand, if you've ever begged God for a miracle and ended up at a funeral, if you've ever begged God to bring healing or restoration, and next thing you know, you're sitting in the ashes of deep suffering and anguish and desperation, and now you're wondering if, if, if God's promises in the New Testament are even true well then you feel the pain of how devastating it can be to trust God to do something awesome when he ends up not doing that awesome thing. I led worship for a funeral at a charismatic church many years ago and the, the woman um, who had passed was a young mom and had two daughters and there was tremendous devastation in that church family and many of the people apparently in that church family had impressions that they believed to be from the Lord, that the Lord intended to heal this woman from the cancer that she fought against for many years. And so they thought the Lord was speaking and saying, pray, dig in, believe in faith. And they dug in and prayed and had 24-hour vigils where people were signed up and praying. And she died. And on that particular day, as the funeral was taking place, the pastor in part because of all these impressions that God had apparently given to members of the church, decided that he was going to pray in that moment with the open casket in front of us for a resurrection. And I was just behind him, was playing the keyboard at the end of his message, and he said, I'm gonna lead us in a prayer and just ask God to do something awesome. And he prayed for a resurrection. It's the only funeral I've ever been to where an open casket also featured a prayer for resurrection and he prayed and nothing happened. The only thing that happened was I saw the woman's daughter, a 13-year-old girl, 14-year-old girl, stand up and run out of the room in tears, re-traumatized because for a few seconds she thought, maybe, maybe that awesome thing that God was going to do is gonna happen right now and he's gonna get great glory for it. So you can see how this isn't just abstract theology. Signs and wonders, it, it can affect very personally people's lives. So should we, on the one hand, always expect miracles and only expect that the miracles won't happen when we haven't had enough faith, as is suggested by large wings of evangelical movement, or should we expect no miracles and save ourselves the heartache? of believing and trusting that God might do something in the present that he used to do in the past. And so I think a passage like this provides opportunities for us to look at both the positive and the negative, to look at the tension that we live in between the already and the not yet, the, the already that the Spirit sometimes comes with tremendous power and breathes life and healing onto the church and into people's lives. Sometimes we see that this is not yet heaven and we have to live with the heartache of the moment. And so we're gonna look at 
the positive and the negative. We're gonna look at four purposes of signs and wonders and three warnings with respect to thinking about signs and wonders. Number one, the purpose of signs and wonders. Why signs and wonders? This is not just a New Testament thing. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament where God moves with signs and wonders. So why? Number one, they confirm God's presence and approval. Signs and wonders confirm God is present. They, they confirm that God is approving of something. So to put it slightly differently, God often uses miracles, he often uses signs and wonders to validate a message or to validate or authenticate a messenger. So a few examples of that, the ministry of Moses. Moses in the time of the Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God raises up Moses and Moses knocks on Pharaoh's door and he says, he's got a message. And what's his message? Let my people go. And God attested to the truthfulness of the message by signs and wonders. In other words, it was let my people go accompanied by frogs, locusts, hailstorms, and, and all the rest, right? It was, it was a testing, it was validating. I sent Moses, he was not self-sent. He wasn't a self-appointed deliverer. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. My people are coming with me, is what God said through Moses. Not just with words, but with power, with signs and wonders that Moses had been authorized by God. His message wasn't his own. He didn't make it up. The ministry of Jesus. So fast forward from Moses and you see clusters of miracles and signs and wonders gathering around the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Miracles attested to his identity and to his ministry. You might remember a moment where John the Baptist, who was the the prophet who had the untold privilege of announcing to the world, here is the Messiah. All the other prophets leading up to that point said one day Messiah is gonna come. John the Baptist saw him coming down to the River Jordan and said, behold, there he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist has a kind of crisis of faith because John the Baptist is in prison. And it says that he sends his disciples to find out if Jesus, in fact, was the one. Here's how it reads in Matthew chapter 11. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, John sent a message through his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else. And in one sense, you, should, you can almost imagine Jesus saying, if anybody knows that I'm the one who was sent to the world, it was you, John the Baptist. You leapt in your mother's womb the day that I was announced, right? So Jesus replies to them. Notice this though. Go and report to John what you hear and see. It wasn't just a message. It was fireworks. And what were the fireworks? Verse five, the blind received their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. That, by the way, is Jesus basically quoting Isaiah 61, 750 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said, when Messiah gets here, you'll see the lame walking, you'll see the blind seeing, you'll see the deaf hearing. And Jesus says, Isaiah prophesied, and so I sent your disciples back just to tell you what they've been seeing me do. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Peter strikes the same emphasis about the miracles that attested to the identity of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter two, when we studied that, we saw it. Acts two, verse 22. Peter's preaching his first sermon in this book. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God, how? 
with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. In other words, he's talking to crowds and audiences that would have been there in the weeks and months and a couple of years that had just taken place. And he said, you saw him raise people from the dead. You heard word about this in your own towns and in your own villages. He was attested as the Messiah by God. You saw his mighty works. Not only did miracles and signs and wonders attest to Jesus' ministry, but they attested to the ministry of the apostles. So you see in Acts chapter 14, verse three, it says, they, talking about the apostles, stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who, that is the Lord, testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. So you see a message and you see signs and wonders. And God is attesting to the message by signs and wonders. A word of grace and God is shouting amen to that message that the apostles are preaching, publicly affirming that what they're saying is true by working miraculously in the world and in their communities. So it's a purpose of miracles. A second purpose of miracles is they capture attention. They capture attention. So there are 17 clear occurrences in the book of Acts which directly tie miracles and signs and wonders to people being saved, to people believing in God. God meets a need and then people's eyes are open to who God is and he brings them to salvation. Peter, for example, in Acts chapter nine, we'll see this in a few chapters, he heals a paralyzed man in Acts nine and here's what it says. The man immediately got up So all who lived in the town saw him, that is the man get up, saw him and turned to the Lord. So a miracle sign and wonder leads entire towns to turn to the Lord. Same thing happens, same chapter, Acts chapter nine, fast forward a few verses and verse 42 talks about a miracle that takes place and it says this, this became known, this miracle became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Miracle happens, miracle is known and seen by the people, and many believe. That leads to the next purpose of signs and wonders. They demonstrate God's compassion. And how often when you're reading through the Gospels and you see Jesus working powerfully and raising people from the dead and miraculous things taking place, how often it ties that work of Jesus to the compassionate heart of Jesus. Here's an example, Mark chapter one, verse 40. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice these words, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told them, be made clean. Another place in Matthew chapter 14, it says that Jesus had compassion on the people and healed all their sick. So the healing is downstream of the compassion of Jesus. It's an expression of the compassion of Jesus. I remember taking a missions trip when I was um, a teenager and we went to Mexico and we were invited to walk around in the village and um, go to each house 
and to tell people that tonight in the town square, we want to invite you to come and there are going to be balloons for the children and various things, but there's also going to be a message about who Jesus is and what he does in our lives when we trust in him. And so we would invite people to come and we would say, but before you come tonight, we would love to know if there's some way that we can pray for you. And so we prayed probably over the course of that whole day walking through that town. We probably prayed for dozens, maybe 100 people in that town and prayed for various ways. Almost every time you asked them, they would say something about their daughter being sick or someone being ill in their family and so forth. And on our way, I remember this. On our way walking back to where our group was going to be, um, one of the older men in the group He said, I don't know why we're praying for all these people. And he said, because scripture says that healing is the children's bread. And if these people need to hear the gospel and need to believe, then the bread isn't for them. Healing is not for them, it's the children's bread. And I remember not having a response to that, but it's it's stuck in my mind, this 20 something years later, I'm still thinking about that statement. And now going back and thinking about that remark, He takes a phrase from Matthew chapter 15 and bends it in the exact opposite direction of what's happening in Matthew chapter 15 because in Matthew 15, there's a Canaanite woman. She is not the children. She is not the children of Israel and she's begging for the bread of Jesus' compassionate healing. And she says, please, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, the the, the healing is for the children. It's the bread for the children. And she responds with great faith in her heart and she says, but the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus looks at her with wonder in his eyes and he says, I wish I could find faith like this in Israel. Your daughter is whole. And there a Canaanite woman eats the children's bread of the compassionate miracle working power of Jesus. In other words, Matthew 15, Jesus is precisely doing that. He's leading with miracle. He's showing them, he's inviting them into an experience of his mercy. Sometimes, isn't it amazing witness to the humility of God that sometimes he leads with miracle, with some, where some people will still walk. Right after they have the miracle, they'll still walk away and won't submit to him as Lord, that he sometimes meets people right where they are and even in their physical ailments with the prospect of giving them something that lasts, something that's not a passing miracle, an eternal miracle. The next purpose of signs and wonders is they point to a future that awaits every follower of Jesus. So we have, when we read the book of Revelation, in one sense we have a time capsule, not from the past, but from the future. And here's what the future is described, how it's described in Revelation 21 verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death will be no more, grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. In other words, that's the church of the future, the church triumphant saying that pain, tears, crying, grief, and death is everything we experienced all day, every day in that fallen world, but not here, not in the new creation. You know, when you go, um, when you go to the grocery store and sometimes they'll have that little sample tray and the person's there and they're offering some new product, some new you know, cheese thing, which is not for me, but maybe if you're into it. Uh, but they'll have, you know, if it's got wings or if it's got, you know, and it'll have toothpicks sticking up out of the top of Cinnabons or whatever it is. And I'm usually game for trying one. 
and maybe even walking around. If it's that good, maybe walking around and put my hat on backwards or something, trying to come around and see if I, see if I can get a second one. But that's, right, that's kind of what it, it's like. You get these cinnamon rolls or whatever, and you find that they are as wonderfully delicious as they are frustratingly small, right, as they are frustratingly transient. I mean, it's just over before you know it, and it's like, ah, oh, that was, it was too small. I needed, I needed more. That's kind of like the healings that you see in the book of Acts. You remember the guy at the gate, beautiful, in Acts chapter three, and he's never walked a day in his life. He was born crippled, and now he's over 40 years old, and he's sat at that gate for decades and decades begging for alms to help pay for his bills. And, and God heals him. And, and he doesn't just rise up and walk. He rises up and walks and leaps and dances his way all the way into the temple. It is a, it is a, a temporary present experience of what will be permanent future reality. And why do I say temporary? Because months or years later, that guy died. Right? He's somewhere, he's buried right now somewhere in Palestine. Something got him. Months later, maybe years later, but his healing was a foretaste. His healing was a sampler from the New Jerusalem there's more where this comes from. It's a wonderful blessing, but frustratingly passing, frustratingly small and temporary. It's a good reminder of the purpose of miracles. But there are warning labels to signs and wonders in Scripture as well. So the warning labels on signs and wonders. You remember in Matthew chapter seven, when people come to Jesus and, and Jesus says, on, on that day, many will come to me and they will say, Lord, we, what? Prophesied in your name, supernatural kind of thing. We cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles in your name and Jesus says, what? Never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So here's the warning. Warning, miracles don't always validate a minister or ministry. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. That's what makes this complicated. It's not just one or the other. So discernment is needed. That's why I get texts like this in, in Mark chapter 13, verse 22. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So God's people need discernment to know true signs and wonders from false signs and wonders. The ability to discern is this person who's teaching a false teacher or a true teacher. Identifying a good tree has good fruit and a bad tree has bad fruit. Here's another text in 2 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul writes these words. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders serving the lie and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. What's the message you take away from 2 Thessalonians chapter two? It's this, you wanna be firm in your faith? Don't fixate on miracles, love the truth. Hitch your wagon to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. Stand on the truth of God and the truth of his word. Another warning. Miracles may draw an audience that only hungers for more miracles. 
So on a couple of occasions in Matthew's gospel, Jesus condemns those who ask him for a sign, which is interesting because the early church community, just a couple of chapters ago we saw this, they ask Jesus for a sign. They are praying. They come together and they're praying and they're asking God, stretch out your hand with signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So is, is that to be condemned? Is that practice them being idolatrous and hungering and craving after signs and wonders? No, clearly Jesus wasn't against the early church praying for signs and wonders because he answered their prayer and moved in powerful ways. So it's not one or the other. So Jesus sometimes condemns it, sometimes he doesn't. Here's where Jesus condemns it, Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. So is the community of believers in Acts chapter four an evil and adulterous generation when they ask for signs and wonders to be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus? No, it's more complicated than that. Because when you, when you dig into the text where Jesus says that and uses that warning, it's Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 16. And here's what happens. In both of those contexts, when Jesus is asked for a sign, he just performed one. He had just worked a miracle. So Matthew chapter 12, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man and they say, show us a sign. And he says, I just did one. You need, what, what, do you, what do you think I am? Like, I'm not here to do party tricks for you guys. I'm not here to do miracles on demand. That is not the purpose for which I came. Matthew chapter 16, same sort of thing happens. Jesus just fed 4,000 people miraculously, and they say, show us a sign. He says, turn around, they're still eating. <laughs> it literally just happened. And yet you're just saying, churn out it, do a dance, do, do another one, show it, flex your right arm, then maybe we'll talk. And Jesus says, you don't understand how this goes. <laughs> so depending on the orientation of the heart, a miracle far from leading people to faith may lead them further into unbelief. You think about the Old Testament story of the Exodus, they're in the wilderness, a couple million people looking around in all directions, how are we gonna eat and God rains down bread from heaven, manna. They walk outside their tents. They have just enough bread for them to go inside and eat. That entire day, all the bread they need for that day is supplied by God. And then they go to sleep, and then they wake up in the morning, and there's more bread on the ground, and they just pick it up. Bread's fallen from heaven. And not very long after that, they say, could we get something else on the menu? I mean, this bread is kind of, we'd like something different. Could we diversify what we get to eat? Now, while the bread that's fallen from heaven is in their hands, it says they tested the Lord. So miracles may draw an audience that only hungers for more miracles. Another warning, miracles may lead us to drift from what's most important. Matter of fact, Jesus, he sends out his disciples to preach the kingdom and to cast out demons, and they come back and there's only one thing they're celebrating. Not the people who came to faith, but the demons that were cast out. And they're slapping high fives and yucking it up and all the rest and Jesus says, hold on, don't rejoice that demons were subject to your faith. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your names are written in heaven. He's saying, keep the main thing the main thing. <clears throat> you, got, you went and got flashy with it, right? Same thing happens with the church at Corinth. 
What is, why does Paul have so many edgy words toward the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians? It's because they were so enamored with power encounters. They were, they were not interested in the ordinary gifts of teaching and encouragement and hospitality and so on and so forth. What they wanted was, give me prophecy. Tell, let me be able to tell the future of what's about to happen. Let me, let me read somebody's mail. Give me that ability. Give me the gift of healing. Give me the gift of speaking in ecstatic tongues that nobody can understand, but it's angelic voices that are speaking through us. Give us those things. And Paul said, you know the real measurement of the presence of God among you? It should be this. Wait for it, love. <laughs> and you can almost imagine it's sucking the air out of the room where the church of Corinth says, the love thing? That's so boring, the love? And Paul puts 1 Corinthians 13 right between chapter 12 and verse 14. 12 and 14 are all about signs and wonders and gifts and power and all the rest, and 13's right there in the middle. And Paul is saying, if I could speak with the tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm just making noise. He said, if I could have prophetic powers and have faith to move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. It's as though Paul is saying, I'd trade 10 miracles for an outbreak of humility in Corinth. I'd trade 10 miracles for an outbreak of holiness in Corinth. But that's not what you want. You just crave more power so you can thump your chests about it, right? Paul wasn't denigrating miraculous signs. He was just saying, that's not the final proof that the Spirit is among you. You not saying, I'm of Peter and I'm of Paul and I'm, that's proof that the Spirit's among you, a unified church. It's one thing for God to grant signs and wonders to people who humbly run to him for help and ask him to show up in their lives and then other people maybe see that and put their faith in Jesus. That's, that's one thing. It's another thing to insist healing comes first. Hey, you show me this healing and we'll talk about whether or not I'll serve you or follow you as Lord. And here's where there's a warning for the church, not just in America, but all around the world. It's possible to fill a church with people trained to want God on their own terms, to want God as healer, to want God as therapist, and to not want him as Lord, to not want him as master and king who calls the shots. Here's the tension of signs and wonders, faith, God acting in power, and God sustaining his people. Is God is able to forge your faith by showing you his healing power? And God is able to forge your faith in the fires of affliction. Job, in the Old Testament, everything was taken from him. And he sits there in the ashes and he says, even here, blessed be the name of the Lord. What, what statement is that making? It's making this statement. I didn't serve you because you gave me all the things I ever wanted. I served you because you were worthy. I served you because you're God. The power of God's spirit through the proclamation of his gospel with signs and wonders has sometimes spelled great blessing in the church and wonderful gains in the progress of the gospel, but there are needed warnings. So think about us. What now for us? A few things for us to take home as believers. Number one, Pray for God to get glory by moving in power. We're invited in the New Testament. James says, Any, anybody among you suffering, let him ask. Let's ask for healing. Let's, let's not be afraid to ask for healing. Ask for help. Ask for grace. Ask for God to flip the script. Ask him to do something awesome that he'll get glory for. We're not afraid to ask. 
Second, give thanks for every manifestation of God's presence. Having asked, have broad categories for understanding how God works in the world. Give thanks for every manifestation of God's presence. So God is sustaining some friends here right now and he's getting glory as you persevere before you've gotten your prayer answered. Maybe despite the fact that your prayer wasn't answered and you keep clinging to him and it's making such a loud statement that it's Christ you serve. You don't serve him because he gives you everything you've ever dreamed of. You serve him because even though we don't know what the future holds, we know who holds the future and we're holding on to the one who holds the future. It, that's our, the confession of the church's hope without wavering is that statement. And third, keep the main thing the main thing. So signs and wonders are used by God in wonderful ways throughout the book of Acts, but they're never the point. You, you never pick up in the book of Acts that the church has kind of miracle fever, that they're having you know, healing services left and right. But just follow what happens in the book of Acts. Supernatural events take place. People, the power of the Holy Spirit lands on the church in the upper room. They come out speaking languages they've never learned before. They're speaking in the dialects of 14 different groups of people. And Peter says to the crowds that are watching this happen, he doesn't preach a sermon on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He preaches a sermon that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died and rose again. And you should put your faith and trust in him. Fast forward, man at the gate, beautiful, crippled since birth, God heals him, went walking and leaping and praising God, runs into the temple. Crowd is drawn to that moment. What does Peter say? He doesn't say, hey, guess what? God is still in the miracle working business. I'm gonna preach a sermon to you today about divine healing or divine help. That's not the sermon. The sermon is, this is a taster of the future. This points to the kingdom that's coming. For everybody who puts their faith in Jesus, who died and rose again, this is what your future looks like. God will restore all things in his kingdom. That's what the sermon is. It's a Christ-centered sermon, not a miracle-centered sermon. So we can pray for God's power to move while we trust his wisdom in all things. We can pray knowing my limitations don't limit God. I don't have to have the exact right amount of faith. If I'm asking him to move in power, perhaps God will just move in power because he's good and because he wants to show his faithfulness in that way. So sometimes, get it this way, my, my weak faith sometimes will move mountains. And sometimes my weak faith will be held by God even when I can't understand why the bottom fell out, why tragedy struck. And so we, we can know and we can rest in the sovereignty of God. That's a lot easier said than done, but God knows what history needs. God knows when it's time for an outbreak of miracles and signs and wonders again in the world. He's gonna manage that. He's in control of that. The movement of his kingdom isn't up to us. He can move his kingdom to the furthest extents of the world. The gospel is the power of God to salvation and that is the greatest miracle happening in the world today. It's the greatest miracle happening in Birmingham. It's the greatest miracle happening anywhere the gospel is preached as God brings people from death to life, from darkness to light and sets their eternity in a whole new direction. That's the, that's the miracle we celebrate the most, regeneration of the human heart. And so let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's keep our focus on God keep our focus on his gospel. Let's trust that he is going to bring the powers of his kingdom to bear 
in the world as his spirit-empowered church treasures his gospel and proclaims his gospel to the ends of the earth.